Well, good morning, church. Hasn't God been giving us beautiful fall days? And the leaves, what a kaleidoscope of color. Great glory to our creator. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Three of our grandkids live in Germany with their missionary parents. Our daughter, Julie, and her husband, Rich, serve in a local church in Sankt Wendel, Germany, about an hour and a half southwest of Frankfurt. Here you see a picture of them. This is on the first day of school this fall. They are ages eight, five, and three. One day recently, the three of them were trying to divide two muffins between the three of them. Parents, do I have a witness? <laughs> Lincoln, the five-year-old, volunteered this. I'll take the full one, and Justice and Lucy can divide the other. Wasn't that a convenient solution? Hmm. <laughs> Justice, the oldest, who likely had his own secret agenda, smartly asked his brother, Okay, Lincoln, but what would Jesus do? <laughs> Lincoln honestly replied, I do want to be like Jesus, but right now I just want this muffin. <laughs> After we heard that story, my wife kidded me. She said, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if while the boys were fighting, Lucy would have eaten the whole muffin. (laughs) I want is the theme song of the human heart. So what is it that you want as you sit here this morning? Do you want comfort, control, pleasure? Do you want recognition? People are very complex. Frankly, they could be compared to icebergs with much more beneath the surface than above the waterline. They could be compared to onions with multiple layers. As counselors, we have to try to figure them out, determine what makes people tick. And one of the tools that we use when we're trying to get beneath the waterline, their agenda, their personal motives, is to pose to them this statement and ask them to fill in the blank. Here it is. I would be happy if only... How would you fill in that blank today? Be careful. What you answer reveals a lot about you. Down deep inside, we know that why we do what we do is as important to God as what we do. So could I ask you just in this moment as we begin this message to ask yourself the question, why do I do what I do? Now, I'm an equal equal opportunity preacher. I've got to ask myself that question too, and I often do before I preach. Why do I do what I do? Why am I preaching today? And quite honestly, I'm ashamed to confess to you that far too often I sense my motives are skewed, at least in part. I want human affirmation, maybe maybe just a little bit too much. In fact, if I'm fully honest, I want the whole muffin. And yet God will not share his glory with another. 
We're in a series of messages from 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bible, please join me. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. If you've been with us, you've heard three messages from chapter 1 in which Paul recounted how the Spirit of God, the power of God, the gospel of God had transformed the lives of so many folks in Thessalonica. Glorious transformation. But he kind of turns the page and changes the tone just a bit in chapter 2 because apparently there are folks in Thessalonica who thought that Paul came to them with impure motives. He had a hidden agenda. And so Paul defended himself in the second chapter. In fact, he appealed to God to defend him. My estimation, the two key phrases in this text which emphasize the big idea are both found in verse 4 and they are parallel in thought. Here they are. Paul said, we've been approved by God, and secondly, to please God who tests our hearts. You know me as the counseling pastor, and you need to know that when our team of 10 counselors in our church counsels you, what drives us, our theme verse, our key verse, is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim, our goal, our motive to please Him, the Lord. And by the way, in context, home refers to heaven and away refers to living here on earth, which means everybody in this room is away from home. Think about that. Either way, we want to glorify God. We want to please God because he tests our hearts. In fact, God is frequently testing our hearts. I'll go on record as saying right now in this message, I can guarantee that the Spirit of God is going to test your heart if you will listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and in fact, what he is saying to you. You'll find the idea of God testing our hearts again and again in Scripture. Let me just give you a small sample from the Old Testament, three different genres. In the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Law, the Torah, we find these words from Deuteronomy. God led you in the wilderness these 40 years. 40 is the number of testing in the Bible. Remember, Jesus was tested 40 days in the wilderness, Matthew 4. Testing you to know what was in your heart. In the books of the prophets from the pen of Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. Why? How? Even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds, he looks at your reactions. And then in the wisdom literature from the book of Proverbs, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. How how does God test our hearts? How is God testing you today? Well, he puts difficult situations into our lives so that our hearts will be revealed by our responses, by our attitudes, by our actions. If you've been going through a trial, what does your response look like? God's testing your heart. You need to understand this. There are five judgments in the New Testament, and every one of them is determined by works. Not by words. I tell people who come in for counseling who are quick to tell me that they have changed, I say to them, pay more attention to what you do than to what you say. 
Because your actions will reveal the condition of your heart. What is in the root comes out in the fruit. Circumstances do not make us what we are. They reveal what we are. In my estimation, the human heart is like a willful river that has a mind of its own. A number of months ago, I, I jumped on my bike in Ankeny, and I rode down to shelter number four along the Des Moines River, not far from the spillway, the dam of Saderville Lake, because the Army Corps of Engineers was featuring a seminar on the American symbol, the eagles. And so I went, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And they had big scopes there. You could look at those eagles up close and personal, and they shared all kinds of important information that was very interesting to me. And then I, I, I said to the interpreter, hey, hey what's, what's that impressive-looking building right right down the river. He looked at me rather incredulously, and he said, oh, that's a beautiful home built right on the river. He said, those poor folks do not realize that in 50 years, their home won't be there. Wow. He says, rivers are dynamic. They change their course over time, and they're never predictable. They have a mind of their own. So how do we keep the river of our changing emotions and our changing motives from destroying our lives? The answer is by submitting to the Word of God. The Bible is like a scalpel that cuts to the heart of the issue. Indeed, the Bible does exploratory surgery on us. The Bible opens us up and it lays us bare. To quote Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents, i.e. the motives of your heart. Verse 13, neither is there any creature which is not manifest in his sight, not hidden from his sight. For all things are open and naked before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees every thought, he knows every motive as you sit here in this service today. You can't fool God. I want to read our text, and I want to highlight the impure motives against which Paul was defending himself. I've marked them in green, so let's jump in. And your Bibles are on the screen. You can see them. Here we go, verse 1. For you yourselves know, that's a phrase Paul repeats again and again in this letter. He appeals to their obvious observations. You yourselves know, brothers, literally brothers and sisters, that our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Here we go now, for our appeal does not spring from error. There's the first impure motive. Paul said, I only and always preach the truth of God's word, and that's what we're all about here at this church. We're not going to give you lies. We're going to give you straight truth from the heart. Or impurity, that's a reference to sexual immorality, which, by the way, is always connected to false doctrine. If a person's involved in immorality, it means they're believing lies, things that are not in alignment with God's truth. Or any attempt to deceive, it's from a Greek word that refers to trickery, baiting of a hook as by a fisherman, you know, the old idea of bait and switch. Paul says, I'm not into that. 
But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, here's another one, not to please man. Any other man pleasers out there? Anybody else struggle with what people think? I've got my hand up. Yeah, I got a problem there. Too concerned about what people think. Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. But rather to please God who tests our hearts, for we never came to you with words of flattery. Warren Wiersbe gives this insight. Flattery comes from a person who manipulates rather than communicates. They butter people up disingenuously to make them feel good because they do not preach the whole counsel of God. This is so illustrative in many of the television evangelists who only tickle the ears of their hearers. They don't preach against sin, the need to repent. They just make people feel good. That's flattery. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, that is making money. I tell you, traveling ideologues, philosophers were a dime a dozen in that day, itinerants who would go from town to town spelling their tales, entertaining the people, all in the hopes of lining their pockets. Paul said, I'm not into that. He said, God's my witness, nor did we seek glory from people. I didn't do it for the attaboys, the affirmations, the approbations, no. Whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles. And then he, he kind of, he makes a turn here. I love this next two verses. But rather, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you became very dear to us. I want to weave my way back through these eight verses without reading them again to explain to you, to highlight the four arguments that Paul used to defend himself. I'm going to go rapidly here quickly, so... Take your notes fast. Here we go. Argument number one, Paul's defense was God's blessing. In verse one, Paul explained his ministry was not in vain. It wasn't without results. Back to chapter one, verse nine. He said, you guys turned from, to God from idols to serve the true and the living God. Their lives were transformed. Their lives showed the fruit of repentance. And then argument number two, Paul and Silas's courage through adversity. In that second verse, the apostle reminded them that they'd been beaten. Paul and Silas had been. They'd been jailed for preaching the gospel at Philippi. What's the point? People with impure motives don't look for return engagements of persecution. My Bible reading this morning was in John chapter 10 where Jesus distinguished himself from false shepherds who run away when there's trouble. But Jesus said, I don't run away. I lay my life down for the sheep. Wow. These false shepherds, they would say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not going back into trouble. Argument number three, the appeal to a clear conscience before God. In verse five, Paul appealed to the highest court, the supreme court of heaven, to God himself. By the way, you, you can spot a fake 
because they do not have a clear conscience toward God and the hand of God is not on their ministry. You can go into a church and I dare say within 10 minutes of arriving, you can sense if the Spirit of God is there and if they're preaching the truth. If you have any discernment at all in the Spirit, you can sense this is a gospel Bible preaching church. It ought to be apparent. By the way, you ought to be careful about judging people too quickly because you, unlike God, cannot see their hearts. So don't judge motives that you can't see. But Paul knew that God saw within him a pure heart. Can I ask you right now, in this moment, does God see in you a pure heart? You're wide open before God. God, you, what you see, you know I'm right with you. Could you say that? Argument number four, the appeal to a clear conscience before men. In verses six through eight, Paul appealed to them to consider that he did not pull rank on them like some kind of boss apostle, but rather he showed them a tender side operating like a, a, a nursing mother with her baby. He claimed that he would have laid down his life for them. It's instructive to watch the change in a woman that becomes a mother. She may be anything but maternal before she gets pregnant, but something happens when she's expecting those nine months in utero, those nine months of gestation. Something happens to her, and she's transformed. Figuratively speaking, look up the word tender in the dictionary, and you'll see the picture of a mother feeding her baby. Turn on the video, and you'll see her tender kisses, her tender caresses, her tender comfort as she sings lullabies to put her baby to sleep. But if danger enters that baby's den, that mama bear comes out fighting. Woo-hoo. Mama's going to be defensive. I tell you, a grizzly bear mama has nothing on a human she-bear. <laughs> Yeah, she'll feed that baby, but she'll fight for that baby because that's what God put into her heart. And that's the imagery of verses 7 and 8. I'm going to put them up on the screen again because I want you to stare at them for a moment. I'm not going to read them for you, but I, I do want you to look at them carefully and think about your pastoral staff for a second. This is the way your Saterville church pastors feel about you. Now, those of you who know me say, oh, Kurt, you're saying I love you all the time. I do say that all the time. Okay, guilty as charged. But it's not disingenuous. I say it to my kids, my grandkids, phone, text, whatever. I speak for Pastor Pat back there. It's good to have him back after his bout with illness. I know his heart. I know the heart of all six of his pastors. I know the heart of our, our directors and all of our staff members. Saterville Church, we love you. We care deeply about you. How do we show that? By feeding you the word of God, yes, but also by protecting you at all costs because you become very dear to us. Let me just go on record as saying 2020 has been a difficult year for everybody, including your pastors. We yearn for you. 
We want to look out for you. We haven't, quite frankly, had contact with some of our flock for six months. That's very difficult on us because we love you and we care. Figuratively speaking, we would pick you up in our arms. Now, if you know anything about Pastor and me and a few other pastors, we like to hug folks. Do you know how difficult that is right now when you can't hug people? Yikes, that's hard. There's something therapeutic about touching people, hugging people. I love it. So the best I can do, social distancing, is give you a virtual hug right now, okay? Would you hug me back for a second? I, I need a little love. Th thank you. I'm grateful. We do love you, and I can't hold you. I can't touch you. I come up to people like, what do I do? We can't pick you up, but we wish we could hold you to our breast. But at least, figuratively, we can hand you off to Jesus, who will hold you close to his breast, who does invite you, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew tells us, chapter 11, verse 28. My burden today goes much further because of the thrust of our text. My burden today is for all of us to live lives as much as possible for the glory of God with pure motives. I want you to desire Jesus Christ above everything and everyone. So do you. How do we... How do we examine our motives? How do we go about doing this? Well, let me get really practical as a counselor. Can I ask you seriously this week to get alone with God? I mean, really seriously alone with God. Maybe you can go down to the aforementioned Sedeville Lake. Choose an isolated spot out in nature with the beautiful leaves looking at the water. Come with a, an open Bible and an open heart and genuinely ask God, would you reveal the real me? Would you show me what really makes me tick? What is my agenda? Why do I do what I do? It's easy to fake it. And when he reveals to you your mixed motives, you've you got to confess and repent. Here's some questions that you can ask yourself. Maybe we can take a quick picture of this. Three questions you can ask yourself as you get along. What, what gets me up in the morning? What is it that I really, really want from life? And if I don't have blank, I'm miserable. Earlier I mentioned a few possible idolatrous motives. Here's a longer list for you. Top of the left column is pleasure, all the way down, and through the second column to the last one, which is comfort. As you stare at this list and ask, God, would you show me which of these describe me? Most of these are not bad in and of themselves, but when we value them more than Christ, they become idols. The problem is not so much that we want these things, but we want these things too much. They become our goal, our reason for living. We have to have them. We want the whole muffin. 
so we must confess and repent. And then we have to go back to the gospel and imitate the example of Christ. Let me show you three verses from our text, verses 2, 4, and 8, that emphasize the word gospel, gospel, gospel. In the gospel, Christ laid aside all self-will and gave his life as a sacrifice for us. In Philippians chapter 2, the same apostle put it this way, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, that is, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Earlier in that same text in Philippians 2, 5, he told the believers, let the same mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus to lay aside self-will and die to the glory of God. Near the end of his letter to the Galatians, Paul set the standard when he said these words. I love this. This ought to be our theme verse. But God forbid that I should boast, save, or accept in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. A word to those of you who are here, and to be quite honest, this sounds really foreign to you because you've never been born again. There's no change in your inclinations. There's no real desire for righteousness. Putting God first, your life is all about you. Do you realize that could very well indicate that you've never truly been regenerated? So what do you do? You gotta run to the cross. You gotta die to self, to all your self-effort to save yourself by your performance. And you've got to believe that when Christ died on the cross, he did it to pay for your sins and rose again the third day. And then by faith, you've got to invite him into your life and trust him for your eternal redemption. Have you done that? Will you do that today? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past and behold, the new has come. Now, if you have done that as a believer, don't forget the ongoing power of the cross in your life. Some of you are going through some really nasty stuff. I know, believe me, I know. And you're confused, and you're angry, and you're fearful, and you say, what do I do, Kurt? And my exhortation from the Word of God is you've got to run back to the cross and die to yourself. That attempt to fix it and figure it out in your own strength, you'll never do it. You've got to die to self, and you have to find your life in Christ. Jesus put it this way. Whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for, for my sake and the gospel will, will find it again. In a sense, the symbol of the cross to the believer is like the symbol of the Washington Monument to the American. Did you know that in Washington, D.C., there can never be a building of greater height than that special monument honoring the founding father of our country, George Washington? Do you know how high it is? Just over 555 foot tall. And did you know that on the aluminum cap atop the monument are displayed two words in Latin? Laus Deo which being translated is, praise be to God. Wow! In our nation's capital, praise be to the living God. Mm. Construction of this giant obelisk began in 1848 
under the leadership of President James Polk, for which our county is named. But it was not until nearly 40 years later that the monument was inaugurated and opened to the public. Now watch this. When they began in 1848, when the cornerstone was laid, do you know what they put into the cornerstone? They put a copy of the Word of God, the Bible. And near its conclusion, 1884, it was capped near the top with that phrase, Laus Deo, praise be God. Could that say something about the intention of our founding fathers? Hmm. Here is the application. Mount Calvary must be at the center of our governmental heart spiritually. <clears throat> the cross must be at the center of our motives as we serve our Savior. The number one thing I counsel in my office is marital discord. And I tell couples again and again who are struggling with each other, husbands and wives, you must race each other to the cross and die to yourself and live in the power of Jesus Christ who laid it down for the others. Remember, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 drives our Christian living, so whether we're home, heaven, or we're away here on earth, we make it our aim, our motive, to please him. Written over the monument of your life, the declaration must be made for all the world to see. Are you a Christian? Then here it is. Laus Deo. My life, praise be to God. I'm going to ask you to do something just a little bit unique today. Very burden for the American church, for America quite obviously. It's time for us to do some genuine heart searching. I'm going to ask you if you're physically able, whether it's at home, in your living room, or here, I want you to kneel front of your chair, if you're physically able, just turn around and kneel for a moment of prayer. Would you do that right now? Just indulge me. As a symbol of your brokenness, your yieldedness to God's word, I want you to kneel. <clears throat> Only if you're physically able. Again, please, if you're home, don't skip this. This is as important for you as the folks who are here. And I want you to ask the Lord to search your motives and search your heart if Jesus Christ is everything to you. Or if you're living for something else. And I want you to essentially pray the prayer of David as he concludes Psalm 139. Here's what I want you to pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Would you pray that in just a moment? And if you're here without Christ, would you leave off of self-trust, self-effort? And would you put your faith and trust in the crucified Christ who was raised from the dead? Would you invite him in and ask him to take control and be Lord of your life? Would you do that right now? I'm going to get quiet, and I want you to genuinely ask God to break through and show you you. I want you to confess and repent and yield your life once again to Jesus. Would you do that right now in this moment? May God work by his spirit.